Take me back, Keith. Welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. All right. We got a big one this time. Our guest this week is guitarist Keith Scott. Now, as everyone probably knows, Keith has been the right-hand man for Brian Adams for nearly 40 years. Think about how massive that guitar riff rock sound of Brian's was, especially back in the 80s and 90s. All of those hits and those albums like Cuts Like a Knife, Reckless, Into the Fire, Waking Up the Neighbors, 18 Till I Die. Keith was his lead guitarist during those albums, still is. And so with as major as that sound was back then, Keith, to me, is so underappreciated because he is so instrumental in what made Brian Adams special. You just heard Brian say at the beginning of this song, take me back, Keith. We talk about in this conversation the sort of dynamic of their relationship. What songs or parts of songs was Keith especially involved in and proud of? And did he like to play? We get into the stories behind a lot of the hits and a lot of the album tracks, especially from that era. Now, Keith rarely does interviews. As you will see here, he is a very, very humble man. And so we are especially grateful and honored that he talked to us. Now, I have to say, I have been trying to make this happen for nearly two years. So I have to give a special thank you to Carrie. And I'm realizing right this minute that I don't actually even know her name or her last name. I've been bugging her for years. and I don't know her last name. Anyway, thank you, Carrie, for making this happen for us. I hope you guys enjoy this. I love it. I think any Brian Adams fan or appreciator of his music, especially during those 80s and 90s heyday period, will appreciate this conversation. He called me from his home in San Diego. First of all, this is a gigantic honor because you're somebody I've been trying to get on this show for a couple of years. To me, you're one of the most underrated guitarists ever. and But yet I feel like you're somewhat of maybe a mysterious figure. There's not even a lot on your like your Wikipedia page. I don't I don't know that I've ever seen and seen or heard or read an interview with you. Is that by design? You know, are you kind of are you so happy being the guy behind the guy that you just prefer to remain in the shadows? Well, that, that's an interesting viewpoint. And yes, you're right on many counts because I tend to prefer a lower profile. And with the advent of social media, of course, in the last 10 years, that has really 
changed how people perceive, you know, artists in every realm, anything to do with anything. So I, I always felt that side of it was an encumbrance. And Brian mm-hmm. uh, was the flag waver because uh, he loved it and he still loves it. He loves to mm-hmm. tell everybody what he's up to. And he's a proponent, the best proponent of whatever he does because he loves to talk about it. And God bless him because I just am not of the same ilk. I've always kept a low profile. Mm-hmm. Now, in reference to your Wikipedia thing, I don't know who is uh, contributes to that, but <laughs> it is not me. And I do, uh, yeah. Brian encouraged me to run an Instagram page, but I rarely send anything to it. I mean, he sends me pictures and says, put this on. I said, okay, great, you know. <laughs> Um, but, uh, I, I don't really, I, I felt like most of it is, uh, is retroactive. It's old news, old pictures, and that's fine. I, I'm not uh, opposed to nostalgia, but I, I just find that we tread it so many times and there's pictures of me standing next yeah. to this or with someone and that's, that's all good. But, um, yeah, occasionally I, I, I talk about if it's to do with that, I try to talk about either what we're doing or some gear I'm using, which I feel that most people might be keenly interested. Now, I know you, I think, contacted me through Carrie, who runs a fan club for me in the UK. Mm. And I do contribute to that because she has always been so supportive for like over 20 years. Oh, and wow. we started out with, this, with like five people interested and she's <laughs> been running that for years. So I, I do contribute to that in some degree and i'll send her a, a little bio about something like that i think a few weeks ago she asked about a, a lot of people asked me what's the favorite track you've ever done with yeah. brian i said well even to this day the title track for another fire has always been a highlight for me one of those subtle things that you had to be there kind of thing and it, it was when, when you're a session musician and you go in and you do several takes of a song and blah 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 and then you do overdubs that's pretty typical for most sessions i've been involved with and uh and yeah. you if you can get something that you get off the floor that is magic and there's no horrible mistakes or anything and they use it on the final recording then that's kind of a, a benchmark for us for me personally too. So yeah. I, in reference to that track, yes, the, the most of that was taken off the floor, including the middle solo. And um, there's something about the, the theme in that song and the feeling that it projects to me wow. that I just feel that uh, that was the highlight for me. And it hasn't... Yeah, really? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, there's been obviously since then, there's been more popular tracks. but Sure. Um, and there's things I've been equally as proud of. But I think just from that point of view, I, I just... I just feel like that's something to hold on to on a personal level. Yeah. But we, of course. Oh, I love that. Yeah, it's never been a hit. It's we when we went to play it live, it was just never sat the right way. We just didn't seem to get it like we did mm. on the original recording, and 
I think at one point Brian just played it by himself on his guitar and mm-hmm. and he does a great job because you know he's he can mm-hmm. deliver that so so well. So but I just that, that and, and I wrote a bit for Carrie a few weeks ago and she shares it with some people on her site and I'm going to continue to do that and okay. talk like in reference to what you say Good. we want to hear the stories. Okay, well this is what I remember. Yes. Uh, this guy fell down and broke his toe and we <laughs> ordered up a sandwich at four in the morning. That's what we yeah, want to yeah, know. As, yeah. as we do. That's exactly it. Yeah. I'm keenly aware of, of, of that thing too and my favorite music and stuff. So ask me what you like. <laughs> so no, Sorry to ramble on there. Okay, good. Well, no, this is, are you kidding? That's gold. Now I've learned not to ask that question to people because they they kind of don't like it or they don't know how to pick among their children kind of thing, but you, you nailed it anyway. So let me ask you the question I do ask instead of that one, which is, uh, is there a moment in any song that you are particularly proud of. And you've already mentioned the fire, so let's, you know, pick something else. But, you know, anything relating to, oh, I, I was sick, but yet I got the the best solo ever, or I couldn't come up with a riff, and then suddenly it came to me, or I was angry <laughs> at somebody, and yet I performed anyway. What What's the moment that you are most proud of? Well, I mean, there's a lot of times when you're, you're especially uh, tracking, there's so much adversity in every way, because most of the time you're under a, a time constraint budget, uh, but people want to get it done. And, you know, Brian likes to get things done quickly and he's very particular. So, and every producer I ever worked with via Brian or even outside, they're, they're in the same boat. They're all under pressure to get the finished product out because, they're down in the, in the head of the train there. So um, anyway, I, there has been times when I've referenced when we were working with Mudlang on Waking Up the Neighbors, and we'd basically done this blasting rock album and Mutt coming off the heels of Def Leppard. There was a lot of that kind of approach to Brian's record with big background vocals and oh, the okay. drum machine back the And I, it's totally understandable. And once you work with Mutt, you understand where his sonic approach is and, um, and how he arranges music. And you say, okay, I, I took, I mean, I was at his house for almost a year in the UK <laughs> recording that record. Just me. I mean, he's, oh, he's, really? he's, oh no. Oh yeah. And I, I remember at one point, uh, I'd been there since July, I think. And I was coming home I was going, uh, what happened? The scenario was I stayed in London or I stayed at Matt's house from Monday to Friday and he preferred not to work on the weekend. So he'd say, uh, get the engineer to drive you back into a hotel in London and you can relax a few days and we'll start again Monday. So that's what I did every week from July until uh, almost Christmas uh, to oh, 1990. Man. That was the year 1990. So, but it was, wow. it was fine. I, I love the routine and I, the guy is untouchable to work with. He's a terrific man and an incredible musician and, and producer writer. He's one of the highlights of my career, sure. cool. uh, the, the opportunity to work with him. And uh, anyway, I would do this routine and I remember getting to December. It was like the fifth or sixth month. And I wasn't complete yet. I had a lot more work to do still. And I, I was going back in London on a Friday night and I said to the engineer and he said, are you okay? I said, I just can't believe it. I've been here almost six months. I'm still not done. I can't, this is unbelievable. I'm just not getting it. Obviously I was right. coming down on my own self. And he said, uh-huh. Oh, he says, you're going to be done in a few months. Don't wait. The guy in Def Leppard took three years to do his part. <laughs> <laughs> so that's some that's some comfort 
uh, albeit their their production uh, for guitars was, I think, a little bit more complex than maybe, ours, where we were <laughs> keeping it much simpler than that. But because yeah. I, I know and I hear their records now, and I understand what the work they had to put in to get what they yeah. did, because they were it was unbelievable. But that was the difference. Uh, they were they weren't under what well, they were, but they opted to spend that kind of time getting everything the way they wanted it. And then they had accidents within the band, like personal situations. So, but I just heard that one quote and I thought, well, that's some comfort, but not really. (laughs) And, and then the tail end of that was, and this is the point I'm going to give you as a reference for, you know, there's a, there's a time when you thought, okay, I'm I'm okay. Um, the very end of the session, this song came in and they said there's a, an offer to do this song for a movie. It's the new Kevin Costner movie because he just come off of that really big film. And they said, it, nobody seems to get it. So we're going to try and throw a song together and see if the movie company wants it. And so this thing came in and they threw it around a little bit and came back on Monday. And uh, by this time, we moved up to the Battery Studio in North London. And, and Mutt said, well, I got a little bit of a middle eight here. And Brian said, I got this. And they threw this thing together and they did the solo for it. And he said, just throw something down. And I remember <laughs> the movie people came in that afternoon to hear what we got and so there was a people and of course these guys were from the united states and and they were talking about their race horses that they owned and their yachts and stuff and i was getting kind of an i I I was starting to get annoyed because they wouldn't shut up and this subtle moment opened up for the song everything i do i do it for you and i thought oh this is going to be fun because that's a great space to do a David Gilmore type, you know, comfortably mm-hmm. numb thing. I don't know. But, you know, I started, well, this is going to be fun. And I could hear the changes going by. And I thought, oh, I can't wait to give a shot on this. And and then uh, we, we just started tracking it. And I remember Mutt looking at me, he goes, are you okay? <laughs> and I'm looking behind me, rolling my eyes. And he goes, don't worry, don't worry. They're going to go soon. Like, because he could tell they were annoying me, you know, and I was trying to get into the mood. Yeah. And they were like, rah, rah, rah. So anyway, I, I we pulled it off. And I, I the point is I... I did the first lick and then Mutt said try this and then Brian said how about this and I think within 20 minutes we had the basic for the solo and and Mutt turned around and he goes hmm not a bad little not a bad little bit there and he <laughs> like he he knew he had one but in Mutt Lang terms that was rapid quick like half an hour for I mean because we would spend days But I was proud because under you know circumstances which I, I had to kind of just 
tune out the surrounding you know, distraction yeah. and just kind of think and focus on oh, what is going to feel nice here. And now when I hear it back and I think, you know, that was okay considering, you know, and I don't really go, yay, but there is emotion attached to music. Mm-hmm. It's usually outside of the session. And if that song represents something either really uh, some some kind of success in your life or a tragedy sure. that's where it all comes back and it's more on a personal level yeah. so there was unfortunately a, a family tragedy that was based around that oh, song no. which it makes it well i don't want to get into it but that's fine my family where we lost a family member and that song became a focal point and it was oh. it was tough to fathom and and uh, and from that point on for many years it was a struggle to go through it i just have to tune out all the the noise and just get through it and i'm fine now of yeah. course but for several years after that that would happen this was like in 1996 and wow you know uh, anyway but we're, we're able to move forward now okay. but I, I still am pretty proud of that i'm proud of that too because of the circumstance yeah with the suits in the room and you're able to perform anyway that's such a great story you know i lived in england in the in i moved to england in 1991 right after i graduated from high school and as oh, you wow. know, that song was the number one song for four months or whatever. It was the song of Correct. the year. It's the song of, you know, the ages or whatever. But that, I was there at the hype. And as you probably know, the UK tends to care a lot deeper about their pop charts than the US does. Agreed. And so every Saturday morning, there was this uh, show on TV called The Chart Show. And we would watch it every Saturday to see if everything I do was still going to be number one. And it was forever. <laughs> I mean, you know this. And, uh, yeah. and you know, I've just moved from from uh from the states and so it, the song is reminding me of like the girls i had crushes on in high school who were writing me letters and stuff like that it was that was massive for me and and it wasn't uh i gotta admit until much later it wasn't a song that i necessarily got sick of you know what i mean because it was played so much that was such a such a great time in my life and that song was the soundtrack of this great time in my life uh, that's that's interesting. You probably hear stories like that a lot, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's been people that have said very similar things to me. Uh, like somebody comes to your house to fix the, the <laughs> you know, the the bath faucet or something. They say, oh, I, I see a musician, but he's sort of, okay, okay, that's what I do. He goes, oh, I just have to say, uh, my first yeah. child was born and this song, and this that's our song. And I said, oh, you know, that's such a charming and a touching part of what you do. Now, I have yeah. to one more thing about that song. <laughs> Uh-huh. Bring it. <laughs> we submitted it to the movie company, and uh-huh. the, of course, it was for the Robin Hood thing, and they thought it was terrible. Oh, but really? They, they they said this is not anything what we wanted. We were thinking something more like medieval lines or something. We wanted mm-hmm. Sting to do it, or mm-hmm. I think Cheryl Crow wrote a thing. They didn't. That wasn't wasn't working. They begrudgingly, under the time constraints of getting the film out. They put that in the film, but when we went to see the premiere in Hollywood, it wasn't in the middle of the, it was a little snippet of it in the middle of the movie, like an instrumental piece of five seconds. It wasn't at the end of the movie when the credits, it was when the screen went black and the guys were (laughs) pushing the popcorn boxes off the floor. That's when the song came on after everybody left. That's how disappointed they were in the track. The record, the record company, uh, Jerry Moss pulled Brian aside and he said, please tell me you're not putting this on your new record because if you do, it's the end of your career. (laughs) 
and he says, but Jerry, the song's climbing the charts in the UK yeah. and Europe. He goes, I, I think it'll kill your career right well. I just think all of those anecdotes mm. from that time yeah. were the funny and in reference, yes. And, and it was not because nobody promoted the song. We, the, right. Their label basically walked away. And uh, the, the fans chose it, not, yeah, not any kind did. of thing. And it was just an interesting time for that kind of song. Uh, there was no Phil Collins song. or mm. <laughs> any, <laughs> We had no competition. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? To compete so, for everyone's attention. It was one of those flukes. This happens oh, in the music great. business. There's, you get this, an opening and you don't realize it and things do what they do. And some artists yeah. embrace it. Some uh, don't want to deal with it. But we just looked, I, we were as shocked as anyone. He, I, and after a month of the chart in England, I looked, I said, are you kidding me? He goes, I just can't believe that song is doing that. Yeah. It, you know, we thought we'd come for a week or so and go away. It was more of a preface to, because we were so far behind getting that album out. Uh, it was like, okay, a snippet, give them something to let you know he's still alive, you know, because sure. there'd been quite a gap between Into the Fire and that record. So, yeah. um, and there was huh. um, attempts made to record a record up to then. Um, oh. After the end of the fire, we went in the studio in Olympic in London with Steve Lillywhite and recorded. What? I love Steve Lillywhite. You did? Yeah, so do we. But, but yeah, it was 1988, 89 era, and we went into Olympic and we tried, and it didn't really work out. So, Brian, we went back into the studio in Vancouver oh. and we retracked everything and but new songs. Brian's songwriting partner, Jim, he, they'd stopped working with each other. Oh. So, things were getting a little precarious. Oh. We had a record in the can, and uh, Gil Friesen at A&M said, okay, well, I guess we can go with that. And Brian oh. had started to try to work with Mutt, and he wanted to write with him. He was yeah. going over and he goes, I want to play my new album. Mutt, and Mutt says, okay. And he sits down and he listens. He goes, well, I don't hear any hits. But oh. uh, I guess you can put it out. And Brian was crushed. Uh-huh. And he said, uh, well, what would you do? He goes, well, I'd rewrite everything. you got to redo it because mm-hmm. you got to have hits, Brian. You can't not have hits. You're, you know, That's what you do. You're a songwriter. So he said, would you do it? And he had to, he had to convince Mutt to do it. Yeah. So then he, he shelved everything. And we started again, and they wrote everything in 89, and we started re- recording in 1990, and then, of course, it came oh. out in uh, in 91. No so, Wow. Do those Lily yeah. White recordings exist anywhere? Well, there's, they're Probably around. in the vault someplace? Um, okay. There's, there, he released like a big package last year. It was like a, what do they call them, a compilation, and mm-hmm. some of those tracks, I think, are mm-hmm. on there. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, different sound for okay. what we were doing. But I mean, wow. Steve was, in, we had so much fun with him. He was, he's a terrific guy. And, and and coincidentally, we were in Indonesia last year and Steve lives there now. He's yeah. got a situation going. He was talking about it recently. Well, he was telling us when we were there and he said, I, I it was, wasn't much going on in the UK for me. I was working for Mercury Records or something. And uh, he said, I got this offer from the government down there and it was an extraordinary amount of money to make, to produce local artists from Indonesia. Oh and goodness. it's tied into go, go figure the Kentucky fried chicken chain, which what? is massive in Indonesia. It's so bizarre. Oh and he was gosh. explaining to me, he said, when you go to a Kentucky fried chicken in Indonesia, you go like it's a sit down dinner. It's not like really? you take your bucket and you go, <laughs> you sit down in the family. And what they do is they, if you get a big dinner for your family, they give you, um, a CD of local 
uh, music. No way. Now, yeah, no because nobody really has credit cards there. They don't have an infrastructure with credit and what have you, like uh, Spotify or iTunes or anything no. like that. So you physically have to have the disc. You know, they no don't. Way. You can't download. So they do that as a perk to buying dinner, and it's just massive business. And they do like millions of records a year via this Kentucky Fried Chicken no setup, way. and that's what he does. It's so bizarre. And he was that telling is us about crazy. Actually, I know it's so funny. Wow. But anyway, he's great. He's a great. He's he. Um, he's a terrific guy to work with, and uh, and I've been trying to get him, him on here for about as long as I've been trying to get you on here, but I've never heard back or been successful. Hopefully, one day. I love his work. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, he's fabulous. Good. Let's talk about Into the Fire for a minute because I feel like in some ways that's sort of the lost Brian Adams album mm-hmm. in a way. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the follow up to. The mo- one, you know, your gigantic success, and yet when I I saw you at Red Rocks this summer, okay, that was my third. T- yeah, that was my third time seeing you in my life. Um, I actually saw the Reckless tour when I was about eleven years old oh in Salt Lake City, where I grew up, and then I also in Salt Lake City, you guys were the surprise opener for the Rolling Stones, mm-hmm. and I saw you guys then. And then I saw you this past summer and you guys didn't, this is your ultimate tour. And yet you didn't play anything off that album. Not even, you know, heat of the night. What's the deal? Do you guys not like that album? I love it. I mean, and I think it's, yeah, I do too. We always say, what are we going to play? And there's pressure to play new material and something has to give and you only have so much. And then a lot of what we've been doing lately has been off the backs of when he went by himself 10 years ago. And so he's mm. really kind of flipped some of the ranging around where it's more of an acoustic mm. approach up front. And then we're kind of filling in behind as opposed to a full out, you know, thing when it was recorded. So unfortunately, yeah, I mean, not a single track. We were playing Hearts on Fire for a smidgen. Uh, yeah, love that song. didn't honor the anniversary of 30 years or 25 years for that record which we did with both reckless for 25 and 30 years which it's unfortunate but i I think brian that for him that represents um this is my guess that it's uh, he feels that it's it's, uh, not a successful period in his life the themes of the songs where they weren't the coming of age Mm -hmm. stuff that reckless proposed but it was more like uh, like songs about Remembrance sure. Day, which I don't know if you know oh. what that is. It's like Veterans Day in right. Canada, and that's a pretty somber yeah. theme about men going to war.
uh, Native Son, which is reference to indigenous people's plight. Um, yeah. Into the Fire was more of a soul searching idea. I mean, there was all there was darker themes, you know, and. Yeah. Sure. I think the audience response to that was changing. Now, the preface to that is when we were recording that record in 1986, we took a break to embark on this Amnesty International thing that was going on. Mm. And the highlights of that, the artist was uh, U2, Peter Gabriel, Sting, uh, Lou Reed. Uh, that, and it was... Uh, Tracy Chapman, I think, was in Tracy there. Tracy Chapman was yeah. a Joan Baez was part yeah. for a bit. And of course, it would shift a little yeah. bit with every city. The local people come out and support mm-hmm. and do a number. But we did three songs a night or something. But I think that kind of sentiment crept in to how the songs mm-hmm. were being recorded. And, it, you know, for, mm-hmm. for us, I know Brian's manager was not into it and but this is what was going on really? this is the the music of that time period yeah. was becoming yeah. more and people becoming more aware of stuff and it had yep. gone away yeah. from and more political yeah it'd gone away from more like you know getting in your car and meeting a girl and having a beer to mm-hmm. isn't this a shame this is going on and my public awareness and whatever right. so i think for brian it was a bit of a crossover and in retrospect mm. in retrospect I, I feel that that probably wasn't um, a successful time for him. He wanted to talk more about Interesting. Uh, other things. Of course, when he got with Mutt, that's kind of what it went back to. Yeah. But there were other yeah. there were other roadblocks yeah. in front of us that we weren't even aware huh. of. So anyway, let me ask you a couple of questions about that. I I was pull I pulled out my Into the Fire CD today to get ready to talk to you, and I noticed on there that you're listed on uh, Heat of the Night as guitar harmonics i think i'm getting older my eyes aren't as good as they used to be and so the and the font is really small and so i was trying does that say harmonics what in the world are guitar harmonics what did you do did you do something different on that than you would on any other brian adams song Um, probably I've done harmonics, but there's a, the, the background to that is Brian did all the, the bluesy stuff through the song. That was him playing. Oh, okay. And, and we were trying this new sound thing with Bob Claron and it was, we called it Gated Reverb, where he would play a couple of simple notes. Kind of what he did with, he did with Stevie Ray Vaughan for the David Bowie, That's Dance. That's what Bob was, he said he side-chained a reverb on the, on the channel. So it was getting this sort of short reverby thing, and it was working really well with how Brian was playing. So I said, "No, you got to play it." I mean, he played on the demo. You got to play. It. You can do it. Anyway, we we and he was like, "No, I, I want you to do it." No, you, and I did a couple of passes, but his version was way more happening. Just because he's a good guitar player, he just when he used to put him in the right setting, you know, it's it's really cool. So. Um, okay. So he played all the, and I just did chords and chords, and at the very end. There's a thing at the end. It's like a little harmonic. It's like a melody that goes over the choruses, and that's where. Mm. It, and he said, "Oh, you did all that cool harmonic uh, melody thing in the end, mm. and that's where that was referring referring to." So.
Now, whenever I listen to Only the Strong Survive, and we're not going to just talk about Into the Fire, but since we're on this album anyway, it, that seems like an that seems like a song. Assuming you're the guy playing the slide guitar, <laughs> where Brian just said. You do whatever you want. You go nuts on only the strong. That's kind of what it makes. It's always made me think of. Do I have that right? Kind of. I mean, we would set up the, okay. the, the the songs were demoed up at Jim's house in the studio that he had there. And um, they'd call me and say, come over, play something on this. Okay, great. And uh, that song was there. And he said, this one's going to Top Gun. There's a film coming out. Oh, and it didn't, really? it didn't make it. But uh, it was kind of based. Right. What's the the guy um, um, that had the big song off there? Um, Kenny Loggins. Uh, yeah, Kenny Loggins. He had the mm-hmm. song uh, that it was kind of going around that idea, and they were danger zone. Yeah, on the danger zone. Okay. They were trying to do something similar oh. to that. So anyway, that's okay. that's the background. It made it okay. because Brian did oh, a lot. I have of no that. idea. There's a lot of stuff to do with that, like songs from Reckless songs from all these eras that were specifically made for either other artists or film that there was either past or it didn't make yeah. it or something and they wanted okay well let's just do it ourselves you know and that's what happened As a side note, Keith, I know Brian keeps encouraging you to get more out there. You should do like a track by track. You really should. I think your fans would love that. Like this is the story behind this song and this is what I did on this song. There is a thirst for that. People would love to hear you talk that way, I think. I know. Anyway, just a thought. Because I do the same thing. I buy books about people I admire and they go through every song and I think I'm fascinated too. So I totally get it and... It's just me getting not being lazy and going and doing it. You know, I don't really enjoy talking about things that happened 30 years ago. But, I, you know, I think for me, the people that I, I was starting to lose so many people, the stories are gone forever, you know, and that's exactly that's hard. That's, you know? that's why I do this. And, yep, and I, that's exactly I, it. I don't know if I knew, you knew this or not, but the, the drummer Mickey and I did some sessions with David Bowie in the late uh, 80s with the uh, producer for Bruce Ferrer. And there was three songs. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, and the, oh, and for me, uh, growing up, that was a, one of you know I, one of the reasons why I wanted to be in a band was the uh, the Ziggy album with Mick Ronson, and you know we uh, the first band I worked in when I got out of high school was my friends from school, and we did maybe twenty Bowie songs in that era, and we were totally into it, oh. and, and and so to get to work with David and hear his voice in the headphones in the studio it was pretty surreal. And he was a sweet. Now, Bo is my number one. So tell me the story about this. What was this exactly? Well, I, from what I could gather, Bruce Fairburn was asked to produce something for his record label because David had been with the Tim Machine for quite a while and they weren't really happy mm-hmm. with what the, the response was to it. But David loved it because he was in a garage band. He didn't care. Mm-hmm. And, and I think at that mm-hmm. time he would set up, he was setting up that whole selling going public with his music and he was mm-hmm. one of the first people mm-hmm. so that he, this was like a thing he had to do as an obligation and he was absolutely mm-hmm. nice about it but um we just blew off a couple of these songs that he had kicking around mm-hmm. and he was so nice about it and everything and i was absolutely thrilled of course 
um, once he you know, once he knew what his real plan was, was to basically offload all his publishing, get the money up front, and then do yeah. what he wanted. And um, and that's right. I think that's what happened. And the songs never did yeah. anything. One track wound up on mixed posthumous record called Heaven and Hall. Uh, it was a yeah. It was a cover of uh, like a Rolling Stone. You played on that? Mm-hmm. No way. Turning around to catch the frowns And the jugglers and clowns When they all did their tricks for you You never understood That it ain't no good To let other people get your kicks for you You used to ride a cool horse With your diplomat Carrying on his shoulder A Siamese cat Aiming hard to I just interviewed the director for that documentary beside Bowie about Mick Ronson. We discussed that very song. I didn't know you were on that. Yeah, that was uh, that was Mickey and I, and there was another song called Pretty Pink Rose. Yeah, he, I love that song. He retracted for his record, and the other one I don't know what happened to. I, I can't remember. Oh, wow. Uh, anyway, so that oh, that's gold. Anyway, that was a nice moment. Uh, but and Good. when David passed, and I had pictures of like there's a picture of him and I kneeling down in in, in studios, and he'd sent his runner out to get a. a to Bob Dylan's song because you want to learn the chords and I'm basically going through the chord progression with him and he's got his 12 string and I got my guitar and we're kneeling down and, and it's a picture and I and they so you should put that on social media I said I don't want to like jump on the it was they call them ambulance yeah. chasers you know that right. it's just so pithy to me to take advantage yeah. of somebody's misfortune and try to yeah. say, oh, I was, you know, I, I think that's a personal memory that I really enjoy. And yeah. for some people, I show it to them. Say, well, this is what this is what what picture from that one that happened, and that's just a nice yeah. uh, footnote. But I, I, I just I hate that stuff. You know, I just think it's like yeah. it's not it's it's not very tasteful. So um, anyway, I didn't. I don't really do that. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, but I, I really yeah, it was a thrill sense. for me, regardless of that. Good not, for you. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Good for you. Um, Something I didn't, I had never picked up on for whatever reason was how much slide guitar you do in a lot of these Brian Adams albums. And you alluded a second ago to, are you not playing as much on like Room Service and Eleven and things and albums, the more current albums, Get Up? Are you not on there? Because there's a really great slide guitar moment in I Ain't Losing the Fight which is on 11. Mm-hmm. And I have always assumed that was you. No. But is that not you? No, that might be uh, Colin Cripps, who was, um, Brian was wanted uh-huh. to use that. He, he 
we um, did a tour in Canada and Colin was part of this gal's band and he's, he's a good player and he had a different sort of approach and Brian wanted to try that. So, you know, we're always into trying things and Colin came and sat in the session. So he wanted to try slide. He didn't feel like the blues oriented guitar solos were the right direction for those records. And again, again, we don't do a single thing from those things. I don't think there was, there was a point in our lives where we were just kind of going through it, you know, and uh, mm, songwriting yeah. was changing and Brian was trying different things. Baby When You're Gone was, I think, our only real standout from that oh. era. Not on room service oh, or yeah, get up. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, get up is okay. only a couple things because that was all Jeff. Um, uh, That's what I figured. Yeah. You know, he was he did every he redid everything himself. Yeah. The drums, everything. Yeah. So, but room service was yeah. We all tracked it, but there was there wasn't as much outright guitar. It was just more rhythm stuff and the yeah. odd little bit. You know, we weren't really doing the full on sections in the middle of song because people weren't doing that then. They were just doing a two, yeah. three minute bit and then out you go. She got the brains She got the looks She knows all the right people reads all the right books She got my name She got my number But what she sees in me Sometimes wonder She's a little too good for me She's gonna change me if I let her She's a little too good for me But I'm getting better That leads me to something I was very curious about in relation to you because I feel like what made Brian special and sort of earned those bona fides in the beginning was the riff rock that he was bringing. And granted, maybe the 80s were a little bit more open or, you know, uh, in, in, you could do that kind of thing better or easier then than you could today, you know, but that's what, and, and those riffs and that playing and your playing on that is so, uh, that's what makes it so special. It's the secret ingredient. But then I would say about after 18 till I die, it kind of trailed off. It's never been that sort of riff focused guitar rock based music anymore does that sort of affect you do, do you find yourself sort of inched out of the you know of the stew that makes up brian's music and are you okay with that yeah I, i'm fine i think you know artists have the right and the notion mm -hmm. to change how they view everything and i've like i've always just been felt like i've been fortunate to have been part of something and in the beginning 
cuts like a knife, reckless, even into the fire. It was definitely a common ground. You know, that we all focused on a certain style of music. We'd been opening up for people that were successful in the United States and in Europe and seeing how it worked and what you needed to do to get people's attention and what worked and what was exciting. What, what created excitement mm-hmm. for, and our music was kind of like that. It was up-tempo and and was forceful. So we, we were more of that. But as time goes on, I, I think artists they can't do the same thing forever you've got to switch it up mm-hmm. and because we've been sure. in hills and valleys for for that creative side for quite a while and and then honestly brian's personal life and his professional life was changing too because his songwriting situations were changing he was working with different people and virtually it was just him and jim for the first five ten years and they had a plan and they had terrific success across the board as writers. Brian was signed to as a writer first before he was an artist. Right. So that's what their goal was. That's why he's on that Kiss album. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And all, and a host of others. Yeah. And a, a, a typical yeah. example is the song Run to You from Reckless where mm-hmm. he him and Jim were writing and they would get a tip sheet from the label saying this artist this artist this artist needs this kind of song. Mm-hmm. So they would go and listen to the catalog of that artist and say, you know, was it worth it? Okay. And they got a thing for Blue Oyster Cult, and they said they need songs, they need help, or we want to get some music. And so they wrote a riff around, like, Fear the Reaper that was kind of like, but it was run to you. So they submitted it and they went no. So he played me the oh. he played me the demo. <laughs> he said, "What do you think about this guy?" I sent it to Blue. I said, "Go." They didn't want it, and I said, "You have to save that for the next record. It's so cool." Yes. So yes, that wound up being a cast off. Um, yeah, and wound up being something that we still use today. So yeah, of course. But that was very typical. Uh, if I have one, oh my god! See, this is incredible. If I could say one thing that was and I this is a sticking point for me and I don't (laughs) you don't care what I think but I'll tell you anyway the one thing that I was a little bummed about when I saw you guys in concert this summer was that I felt like Run To You didn't get the the placement that it deserved it was sort of it was like the fourth or fifth song Mm -hmm. and it was kind of it it wasn't like you know prominently featured like it should have been that was my that's my one little thing i know you don't care about what i think but that's that was that's my little bit of my little thought on that because that's such a great song it it shouldn't i didn't think wanted to be buried in like the first few tracks of the show you know what i mean Mm -hmm. but anyway um sorry no no that's fine that song has been in every point it's been open the night it's been the middle of the night it's been the end of the night we've it's been around for so long and i'll just give you a back line 
the show at Red Rocks was yeah. a real tough night for me personally. Why? Because oh, you guys looked great. Oh, sounded no, great. but you the background. I was hanging on for dear life. We use these in ears, right? The headphones, the mm. monitoring. Mm-hmm. We don't have any speakers on the stage. Well, as it turned out, my earphones uh, in Canada had blown up. They broke. We had one spare set. I went to go on stage that night, and the the ones that the last pair I had were busted right five minutes before I went on stage. So it was literally like Uh somebody sticking an ice pick in your ear all night because it was... (laughs) And there's nothing you can do. You You just Uh have to suffer. So I'm just like hanging on. I can't even barely hear the drum downbeat for the time. I mean, it's so yeah. bad. And the place is packed and it's a beautiful night. And I'm like, oh, gosh, as as it happens, yeah. you know, and it was just a really struggle. And maybe some of the energy wasn't as normal. And I'm not making excuses. I'm just telling you what happened. You just hang mm-hmm. have to hang no, out. So. I get it. Anyway, okay. you, you do Got get it. that. Wow. That's so interesting. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yes. Okay. <laughs> No, that's okay. That's see, this is the behind the scenes stuff I want to know. Um, okay, so let me going back a minute ago to what I was saying about riffs, um, especially you know, cuts like a knife, reckless, into the fire, all had these incredible riffs, and it, and there seems to be so, almost a pattern to Brian's thing where each song is introduced by the riff, and then this you know, kind of this sort of solo kind of starts to snake over the top of things, like it's only love, probably my favorite Brian Adams song. starts off with the riff and then there's that other noodling going on over the top is that always brian doing the riff and you doing the the snake sound or what you know what's the dynamic um yeah i mean the songs are the those the those days were always demoed at brian and jim's uh, jim's studio i should say and brian they we worked together and they'd have the basic template for done on a demo stage and then they'd say come over and play something and so like that song uh, it's only love i went over and just blasted a bunch of riffs on it mm-hmm. and then when we go to record it as a band uh, with more of a you know professional setup in a, in a bigger studio and all that i basically would take as much as i could from the demo all the ideas that we liked and reproduce them on an overdub session mm-hmm. and, and maybe add a few things or improve on it if we could and a lot of times we just couldn't it was and we probably would have flown the solo in as they say if the sound quality wasn't, I mean, we just plugged into a Rockman, you know, and just to get the idea down mm-hmm. and get the vibe. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's how it worked. We would just reproduce it. So, yeah, Brian would usually play the rhythm underneath and I would do the stuff on the top. Okay. And then later, I mean, maybe I'd throw another rhythm piece in or something. It's only until we got to Mutt where uh, things were, Mutt would design everything instead. And then mm-hmm. I would come in. Brian played all rhythms on the left side and then I would do a mirror of that on the right side and then just add stuff on okay. top. So I was a little more involved okay. in that era. So. 
another song and specific song I wanted to ask you about was uh, Ain't Gonna Cry <laughs> because that sounds that song sounds like you guys just having a riot well we kind of did anything goes <laughs> really and so tell me about the story of that song and tell me who is the person that says one two a one two three because it doesn't <laughs> sound like any of you it's Brian but they slowed it down one, a two, a one, two, three. I've always wondered. Okay. Um, that's him, yeah. And, okay. and the scream at the end is me. Really? Yes. Oh, yes! <laughs> that's what I've always wanted to know. Okay. Well, yes. Well, what we did there was we retracted the song really quickly as a throwaway for the last song on the record. And um, we were doing just... We'd already demoed it, so we knew what we were going to do, and we just went for it. I think it was one or two takes, and at the very end, I was out in the middle. We were in Power Station, New York, and I was out in the middle of the room with an Ab Marshall on 10, just going for it. And I was playing, and my headphones kept falling off my head because I was lurching forward mm -hmm. playing. And Bob said, I've got to come out and tape the phones to your head because we only get a halfway through the song, and then they fall off, and you got to start over. <laughs> So, so they came out with some tape and they taped it around my head so the phones wouldn't fall off and I got through the tape at the end and the phones were still kind of slid off and I just basically laid down on my back and I screamed I went Wah! like I think it was over finally at this loud screaming amp and uh, and they kept the scream at the end because it went into all of the room mics so that was pretty yeah. that, and that's the story oh that's great oh I've always wanted to know there you go Let me throw a couple other songs at you, if you don't mind. Yeah. Tell me this. Tell me about Cuts Like a Knife. Tell me about uh, recording that song, what you did, if there's a story. Uh, I mean, pretty straight ahead. We had already demoed it. Um, we'd done a quick solo on it, um, very similar to the one that's on the final record. We just didn't have that little fluttery bit in the beginning, the, the, the whammy bar kind of uh, it's like a trill I call it um, and I remember <laughs> Brian remembers this more than I do we were doing the old solo and it it was okay it was just whatever and Bob stepped out of the room he goes I gotta go get a call and Brian said you know what to do just do it Pushes the record button, and that was that was it right there. Because oh, it was just like, he said, I just had to get. Bob was like trying to do all this like fancy stuff, and um, yeah. I know what you, I know what you could do. You just got to go and play it. Just play it once. So that's, that's, that's what we did, and that's what we did. that is great. So then that then nice. it was pretty okay. straight, it was straight ahead. And Brian did all the the, the okay. rhythm and riffs things, the actual hook line in the beginning. So okay. there you go. Um, what about can't stop this thing we started? I think that was part of the. Steve Lillywhite sessions that it was a pieces, oh. but pieces of it. So pieces yeah. of that session wound up on other songs uh, when we did wake up the neighbors. Uh, specifically, I can't exactly remember, but I know that because okay. 
they had to re reassign all the songwriting things, and that was getting a bit messy. So, anyway. Let me, oh, that's Mutt Lang all the way. Uh, is it? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, how about like somebody? one of Brian and Jim's song tracks that we had from Reckless. When we were on tour with um, with Journey in 1983, we did a whole summer with them, which really helped move things forward along with the advent of MTV and and we had a, a we had some attention with Cuts Like a Knife, so things were moving forward, but on any break if we, if we did a leg of the tour and we had a few days off, either we'd stay out and Brian would go back to Vancouver and try to write with Jim because that was his deal. He had a publishing deal. So he would go and he'd come back and say, oh, Jim and I got this great idea. And, and I think somebody was part of that. And this was prefacing because he knew he had to put a record out the following year. So any chance he got, he would go write music with Jim. Victim of Love is another one that builds to this crescendo of, of again, like everyone just sort of cutting loose. I'm assuming that that's you just going nuts on your guitar mm-hmm. like in the second half of that song but maybe I'm wrong yeah no it is me one goodbye was really all it took now you thumb through the pages of your little black book somehow all the numbers look the same That started as an idea with Brian and Jim, and they um, they were channeling the Prince thing. Um, purple, mm. purple Rain, they wanted oh, to do something like, purple like that. Rain. Yeah.
Yeah, I had a lot of fun. Turn up the Marshall, put the fuzz box. Literally did the Jimi Hendrix chain with the wah wah and the fuzz face really? and the Marshall and the Strat. Yeah. And oh man, and Bob did his magic. Does Brian or anyone ever dictate to you what they have in mind solo wise when they record or when they write a song, or is it like work your magic, Keith? And when we see hear something that we like, we'll sort of encourage you to keep going down that road. Um, I think it's changed over the years. Like I said, in the beginning years, uh, they would have a basic song and they'd say, come over and just play. And I heard times when Jim would say, okay, we got this song. And I'd say, okay. And they plug the Rockman in whenever we get a little sound going and they didn't play. He goes, okay, it's in D, go. And I had no idea <laughs> no, what was coming. And they did it on purpose to see it was like on an art thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And, oh, okay, D. And you just you hear the chords going by. Okay, now it's a minor chord. And you have to kind of go and figure it out. And it's spontaneous. And they and a lot of times stuff came out of that, which is like it's just completely off the charts. And I think it's it's a really nice challenge for a musician. You don't have any mm-hmm. idea. It's whatever you're doing. And I think that's in those days, it was fun and it was different, but more so now, yeah. I think Brian's got specific ideas. He's like, okay, this is what I want to hear. Or, or mm-hmm. you know, um, the, what's that song he had? Yeah. Uh, Please Stay uh, last year we did it mm-hmm. in Ireland. If I gave you too little too late, how was I to know? I don't want to give you up. I don't want to let you. I just need a little time And a little help to find All the words to say Please stay Yeah, I think he had an idea. It was really simple. So, I mean, just just okay. no, no call for that kind of thing right now. Um, mm-hmm. Not as much as, as, yeah. as those days. I hope this isn't too sensitive a question. You can tell me if it is. We'll cut it out, obviously. But what is the nature of your partnership with Brian? He's obviously the, you know, he's the front man. It's his sort of creative vision. But I feel like, at least back in the day, like you said, maybe there's less of a call for it now. He has to be reliant on you to deliver the songs as he hears them in his head. You're such a crucial part to the whole process, you know? Um are you ever involved in the writing? Is it ever diplomatic? Is he ever like, Keith, what do you think we should do here? Or is it just him kind of furthering his vision and you working with him to put that to fruition? Well, I mean, <laughs> so much. I've known Brian since 1976. So it's been uh-huh. 40 years. I mean, I've known this guy forever. I spend more time with him than I had any of my siblings because we worked together yeah. for so long. So there's a, always that element of the personal relationship. And I, you know, we know that we know each other pretty well. Um, I, I mean, it's, it's such a, it's a complex situation from, from all levels, because from the beginning, we were always considered as sidemen, you know, and, and from the drummer yeah. myself, I mean, even the producers, everything. I mean, you're just part of, you're right. You're part of his vision. So, yeah. You contribute to it as much as you feel is, is comfortable for you. And, and in the beginning, of course, when you're coming from uh, the nightclubs and you're going, this could be this could be fun. I don't know. It could be over in a year. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, everybody took a risk because we left our situations to go 
see what this guy's about. The the thing that got Brian uh, got me involved is I I've already recorded this record. You want you got it. Um, I would have mm-hmm. used you, but um, I only had it was limited time and budget. But if it if it works out, if we tour together to promote it and it works out, I make sure you'll get on the next one. So. That's what my uh, my mm. the attraction for me was that okay maybe I'll get to make a record mm. with somebody which I hadn't really done yet you know <laughs> I'd done demos right. and things right. so I mean it was all you know it's okay that's worth worth a shot you know I can always go back to what I was yeah. doing um, anyway and then it kind of just kept going and going and our contributions okay. got greater so uh, up until eighteen till I die and then it kind of was more of I think he wanted to do it more of himself as much as he physically could. Yeah. And by the time okay. it had all gone full circle again, which is to me, it's the last five or six years where he's got back to his electric band again. And mm-hmm. uh, I mean, we weren't even sure if he wanted to keep doing that anymore. And he was like, he was really enjoying yeah. playing by himself, but I think his fans, there was still a call for the full band. So he's, oh, you know, put it together. And I, I, I totally support anybody's, wants to change their life. There's no point going out and not being happy. And I think all artists, yeah. especially creative ones like that, you have to keep things fresh. You have to keep things going. And you know, I've always supported that from, from his side. So whether that involved me or not, I really wasn't that worried about it. I, I just, my contributions okay. have been, you know, extensive for 30 something years. Yeah. And yeah, I, I have. if he says, you know, tomorrow, you know, I'd like to really try a bunch of different things and I'm, and I'm totally cool with that. So, yeah. Um, but he's been very supportive um, of me in all those things. You know, he really helped me. Yes. The initial, uh, my initial uh, recording in a situation, I was very inexperienced. Especially so would do with like gear and sounds, and you know, I remember Bob saying, "You guys got to pick that up because this guy, when I work with this guy in New York, they, they have this and this and this." So we felt kind mm-hmm. of like embarrassed. Say, okay, so we made a real effort <laughs> to go and and fill that gap, and we went and bought certain kinds of instruments or whatever and educated ourselves to make it easier. So, I mean, and Brian really supported me because that's something he was questioning. Well, maybe he's not the right guy, you know, maybe you need to get session people yeah. in that have experience it and blah, blah, blah. So, but fortunately mm. things worked out where, and, and I think there's a growing period for everybody. And you, as you gain sure. more experience, your confidence grows, blah, 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 blah. You become ingrained with it. So, you know, yeah. ultimately, we were able to work with really amazing people all those years and uh, from engineers, producers, writers, everything you want to name. Yeah. I mean, it really was a time, yeah. a golden time, I think for music in general, it just doesn't the same. It sure was. It just, no, uh, yeah. it's not. You're right. Maybe this is obvious, but maybe not. I don't know. I mean, would you consider your full-time job and, and, um, it's a little different now because you guys are very active. I believe you're going to India next, in a couple of weeks, yeah, probably yeah. for a big tour and everything. So your full-time job or your primary job is to support Brian Adams. Correct. But on those, in those off years when he's doing something else and he's solo acoustic or whatever, what are you doing? I know you have this side band, the Fontanas, mm-hmm. which is like a surf rock band. Mm-hmm.
forgive me if this is too indelicate a question. I mean, do you? I assume you just live off Brian Adams touring and performance royalty money and, until he says, "Hey, it's time to go back out on tour. Let's go." Something like that. Yeah, I mean, after almost forty years, I mean, hopefully you've, yeah. you've been able to uh, you know, use all the. You would think, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, we've been really lucky. I mean, they included me in Good. on some of the royalty things in the beginning and publishing and all kinds of stuff. So, I mean, fortunately for us and my family, that is, it's not like I'm looking down the road, like a lot of people no. are. You know, they have to. The business has changed so much. It's, you're involved in five or six things. You're not involved in one or two things anymore. So that's what I'm finding with all my colleagues. There, you just have to spread yourself out, keep things going. Fortunately for us, we're okay, you know. And so whatever, yeah. I, I'm not. I'm not too worried about whether he decides to go out next year or not. So I mean, I like it because okay. it's. I'm still able to, and that's the remarkable. I just turned 64 this summer, and I'm thinking, that I, who would have thought oh. I would still be doing this oh, after man. all these years? So wow! I never would have wow. imagined. Absolutely not. It's complete no. science fiction. But I'm totally fine yeah. with it, and uh, we're okay. So um, good, good. If it was about money, I, I assumed you were. I just wondered. Well, right. I know it's not. I, I don't mean to make it about money, but yeah. I assumed you were fine. I just wondered what you do during the downtime, if those get, you know, become long stretches, like a couple of years where Brian doesn't need you. And Mm -hmm. what do you do in those periods? Who are you contributing to? Did you ever want to do a solo album? I hear you sing back up on some of the stuff. You sound great. Thank you. You know, Um, and you know, I can think of three years in my entire time with Brian, three separate years where we were quiet and that, Uh, that the first one was 1989, right before Mutt when we were recorded and I didn't do anything with him for about six months or so. And then of course he started working with him and he said, no, now you're going to really work. <laughs> you're going to be at a <laughs> for a year. And that of course, from that point on, it was nuts. And then the other one of course was, uh, in, uh, when he went solo of that one particular, and he, I, I moved down from Canada. I originally from Vancouver, Canada. And uh, my family, and I moved down to San Diego 10 years ago. And that was coincidental with, him going by himself. So for 2009, I thought, well, hey, I'm living in the land of surf. I'm getting back on the Fontana's kick again. And I wrote a record for that and I recorded it like three or four years ago. And it's all sitting in the can. I just got to get somebody to mix it. I was hoping my friend Bob Rock would contribute. Um, He's my good friend and he hired me. When I was quiet, he was hiring me for everything. It was just, it was phenomenal. Sort of ironically in Vancouver, I had to move out of the city to get hired to go do session work there. It was so funny. So, uh, yeah, no, he's fantastic. But I would love to get him to do a couple. And Phil Finale is dying to do it. So he's a guy that was involved. I love Phil. Yeah, he's terrific. So... And he's he's a gifted, not just a songwriter musician. He's a he worked with um, Mickey Most. I mean, the guy that produced all the early oh, Donovan and Jeff Beck, and yeah. that guy. And Phil's an outstanding engineer. He's so amazing. He's got his own little place up in North London, and and he's an amazing guy. And I know he'd just absolutely kill. He would kill the Fontanas. Yeah. He'd be amazing, but. I, and he was in our band for a little bit, but he's a, he's a bit of a elusive that way. He comes and goes. Oh, so. And I love him. He, I okay. mean, he's a phenomenal guy. And But I, I'd love to get him to do it. So, yes, Fontana's is sitting there waiting to go. And I'm right now I'm just 
coming up with stuff at home and enjoying it and letting it go. So, yes, I'm going to keep going. Okay. Now, there was a band I was in before Brian. It was a kind of a fusion band in Vancouver. And a friend of mine wanted to resurrect the, the material that we'd recorded. So we did a compilation. And, uh, and Really? And, Is it out there for people to buy? Well, I would send, yes, out? you can to this guy that was, um, he kind of resurrects West Coast music in Canada and repackages oh. it. And uh, I can send you one if you want. You can have a listen if you give me. I would love that. I may have it too. I've got tons of them. Yeah. So. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah, I would love that. Thank you. All right. This is guest producer Paul Underwood with a quick post-interview update. The Vancouver band Keith is referencing is called Zingo, like bingo with a Z. Here's the lead track, Merry Go Round. Once we would laugh and play. Sun, loving in the shadows of night. Now time is sliding. I ain't lying. Think I've almost had enough. So don't you say no more. Cause I'll be headed out that door for the very last time. just a treasure trove Keith I uh I remember being 11 or 12 years old and my babysitter bought me a gift and she bought me Sammy Hagar's I Can't Drive 55 <laughs> record yes. and I had just seen Sammy in concert I was 11 years old I went with my cousin and I really loved it but I remember thinking I would this record's good but what I really want is Brian Adams Reckless album and so I went back to the mall and I exchanged them <laughs> And I remember sitting, you know, cross-legged on my bedroom floor and you guys had pictures inside the album, you know, and it said guitars, Keith Scott. And I remember thinking, oh, because I'm a little, I'm just still starting to figure this out. And to my knowledge, Brian Adams does every little thing in, on his, in his band. You know what I mean? All I know is Brian Adams. And I see that and I think, oh, you mean the parts of these songs that I like? are done by this other guy. Oh, I didn't, I hadn't caught on to that. And I don't know if you get the credit you deserve. I don't know if you even care. I appreciate it, John. It means a lot because as time goes on, you know, a lot of trails get run on and bridges crossed and you, you tend to, to let them go and you don't, you have to be reminded every so often that it means something to somebody much like people that I admired and it's sure. especially hard when you lose them. And it seems like in the last 10 years, we're losing so many of them. And uh, guys, I really admire them. Now I'm the point where I think I better go see this person, even though they're almost 80 years old or something, because they'll never be yeah. back again. And it, it happened last year where my, one of my heroes was Alan Holdsworth, who was a, uh, sort of a... Oh, right. He was a, a, like a real yes. innovator for improvisation and, and 
and it was really something different in the seventies. And I've been studying this guy's music since then. And still it's, I got like a, a mere fraction of what he's doing, but I really love his feeling and how he projects. It's yeah. kind of like a John Coltrane to me of electric guitar. So people like that, but when we lost him, I know, and I, he lived in my area here. He lived in the North, like 30 minutes North of me in Vista. And uh, I thought, I got to go find out how to get to say hi to him, meet him, say, not just to bug him, but to say thank you yeah. for your artistry because yeah. you've lifted me and inspired me for so many years. And the more we acknowledge that, I think it's important to us as we get older. So I totally understand where you're yeah. coming from, and I and I really appreciate your interest. And I don't I only talk sure. about these stories with people in my you know immediate family and and my entourage, yeah. my colleagues, because. You know, at some point you feel like, am I just bragging or whatever? And oh no, 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 just kind of no. And even if you are, my goal for the last two years has been to provide you a stage to brag if you wanted. I just wanted to hear from you. I wanted to know what the world looked like through your eyes because I think you're a really special artist. Well, thank you. So thank you for doing that. No problem. Yeah. Let me ask you two last questions. Number one, what's your family like? Are you married? Do you have kids? Yeah. And then secondly, I want to know what your greatest memory is. Oh, my gosh. Well, you just kind of hit it on the head. Um, I'm married. I got married 20 years ago. Uh, My my 20th anniversary was in May. And my daughter's 16. My son is 13. Uh, we we when we got married we kind of mutually agreed that we probably weren't going to be parents so that really because I was gosh I was in my late 40s and I'm 10 years older than my wife so um, anyway I just wasn't really prepared I, I to be a parent but we met families uh, up in Vancouver and when we moved neighborhoods and we met people that had amazing kids and I thought well if you have kids like that. Maybe it would be something yeah. to do. And then we kind of talk ourselves <laughs> into it. So uh, we've just been so fortunate and, and lucky. And I believe my greatest moment, is, and not with standing with music, has been being a parent because I, I think I can't say I enjoyed anything more than that. And I've been very blessed for, uh, to have two great kids and a supportive family. So Good. it's really important because all the things in the world, all the achievements in the world, Virtually worthless uh, if you can't share them. You know, you can do yeah. if you can be the richest or the most famous or the most talented person in the island. If you're alone on an island, it is completely meaningless. So, um, if I can't tell you these stories, John, they're meaningless. It has to be shared. <laughs> That's true. That's what makes us a culture. Yeah. Is and we are storytellers by nature. I think from goes back many many thousand years. That's where everything we have today from our beliefs and our ethic as a society come from storytelling. And that's a diff- that's what makes homo sapiens who they are. <laughs> it's the ability to do yeah, that. It's so true. <laughs> it's so true. Anyway, I, yep. I got scientific on you. I'm well, sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. That's a, That's what I, this is, it, you're right. And that's why I started this because again, I going back to what I said, I feel like there's these incredible musicians out there that people know, but they don't know that much about whose stories are just as valuable as the stories we hear over and over and over again, you know, whether it be Fleetwood Mac or Queen or the Beatles or whatever, you know, those are great bands, but we don't know the Keith Scott story. And so I thought, well, I want to know that story. That's who I want to talk to. So I appreciate you doing this with me. Well, and I appreciate you being interested and the fact that if we made a positive impression on you as a young person or whatever, then that is our, we've achieved what we are set out to accomplish.
have it, Keith Scott. Wasn't he great? Such a humble guy. I always imagine these incredible guitar players just having these giant egos and personalities. More often than not, it's not true, especially in Keith's case. One of my favorite Brian Adams songs that we didn't get to, I meant to ask about it, but I was just, I was afraid that I was keeping him, is uh, this track right here, this time off of the Cuts Like a Knife album. Such a good song. And I just have to say one more time, thank you so much to Carrie. You guys, when I contacted that fan club website, I realized all this time, I thought Carrie was like his publicist or manager or involved in some way. She just runs this UK fan club. Not just, but I mean, she's not like in the inner circle. Keith has no responsibility to do what Carrie says. And so she just made this happen for me after two years of bugging her. Thank you again, Carrie, for doing that. I wish I knew your last name, but thank you so much. Next week, I'm not 100% sure what I'm going to go with. It's either somebody who has a major, one of the biggest one-hit wonders of all time, who actually shares the same surname as Keith, or that really, really excellent producer interview that I did recently that was going to come this week, but I pushed it off for Keith. I had mentioned in here seeing Keith in concert this summer, our producer this week is Glory Days Radio's own Paul Underwood, and I saw that concert with Paul. He flew up from Texas to spend a couple of days with me and here in Denver, and we went to that concert together. So I figured it made sense for uh, Paul to put this episode together, and so I'm so grateful, Paul, that you did it. And even though he wasn't involved this time, thank you, as always, Yan the Man, for everything else you do in furthering the cause of the hustle. You guys know how to find us. Like our page on Facebook. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email, thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter, at thehustlepod. We put out new episodes every Tuesday. If this is your first time talking to us, we like to tell these kinds of stories to people you know, but you probably don't know that much about, or you don't hear from often enough. That's what we're about here. So anyway, thank you to everybody. We will talk to you next week. Any day.